IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode, we're going to be looking at an iconic movie about music writers. Probably the only iconic movie about music writers, <laughs> at least that I can remember, which is Almost Famous. Uh, the movie uh, turns 20 this weekend. And uh, we're going to talk about the movie, and we're also going to talk about where music criticism is at in 2020. I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, after... What was probably like our most uh, combative and divisive episode, like I'm really happy that we're coming back with some uh, a subject we can both agree upon. Um, I thought it was going to be uh, like a part one of three of us clowning on the new Bruce Springsteen album cover. But, you know, Almost Famous <laughs> will do as well. I mean, look, man, you got I got I got to admire Bruce like not using the uh, symbolism of like actually announcing a new album on 9-11 um, because like the whole this whole COVID thing I'm wondering like when is U2 or when is like Bruce Springsteen going to write their COVID album that gets like the five and a half star review from Rolling Stone uh, for, for, for our younger <laughs> listeners uh, Bruce Springsteen released an album called The Rising which helped our nation heal after 9-11 yes. and um, I, I just want to point out the- like this guy, a guy I follow called Keith Harris. He writes in. He's based out of Minneapolis now, but he wrote this review for Village Voice in 2002 about the rising. Where the last line is, "If uh, 9/11 didn't happen, Bruce Springsteen would have to invent it." Now I bring that up because, oh man, one of like the that is over the line. Yeah, man. like one of, that one is, of the that's most, like too harsh. One of the most raw kickers I've ever heard, but also indicative of like the kind of stuff you could do at the Village Voice in 2002, which I which oh, man. which leads me to segue like into this movie because like a lot of it it comes down to like looking at what was okay 20 years ago to write about. Uh, and then what was okay to be writing about in 1975 and how it compares to now. So all of it, it all comes full circle. I see. I I have to pause this episode so I can go on Twitter and, uh, yell at Keith Harris for writing that because I I think that's what would have happened if, if if Twitter would have existed in 2002, just like the (laughs) abuse that probably would have engendered. I think that really changed a lot. He posted it the other day, uh, so like he's aware, but it, like and you know I think it's very much indicative of like the sort of thing that was happening at the time that Almost Famous was being released. So uh, because yeah. yeah, people look back on the seventies as like the good old days, and to someone in twenty twenty, like two thousand was real wild west times. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, we are almost to the point where the year 2000 is as far away from us as 1973 was in the year that Almost Famous came out. I guess that was 27 years. We're now 20 years away from this movie. It really does seem like a pretty big uh, gap. And, you know, I'm just happy that on this show we can finally talk about music criticism because (laughs) if there's one thing that music critics like to talk about more than music it's music criticism (laughs) we we love to be analytical about our own field yeah we are dying we are interesting we are dying out there with no pitchfork festival like that was the one time we could all get together and just like like realize hey i actually like this person who i argue with on twitter and now without that we're all just it's 
It, it, it's just a complete war zone. Yeah, Pitchfork Fest really is a great metaphor for music music criticism because you, you're surrounded by music, and yet critics are talking to each other about music criticism. <laughs> well, instead of listening to music, you know, I mean, I feel like that's like a great metaphor for what music criticism is in a lot of ways. Yeah. But let's let's quickly, I guess, talk about Almost Famous um, itself before we kind of do the broader conversation about music criticism. I feel like the people listening to the show have at least heard of Almost Famous, if not seen it like more than once. But on the off chance that you don't know what this movie is, it came out, as we said, in the year 2000. It's based on the experiences of writer-director Cameron Crowe. You may know him from films such as Say Anything and uh, Jerry Maguire. He made a really bad movie called Elizabethtown and some other not very good movies. But anyway, Almost Famous was his passion project and it's about his his experiences in the 1970s as a uh young rock writer for rolling stone and when i say young i mean he was actually a teenager when he started writing for them and uh he ended up writing about like most of the biggest acts of the 1970s he was the guy who was writing about led zeppelin fleetwood mac the eagles Joni mitchell uh and it's interesting because you know I, i read this uh there's this great book that came out many years ago. It's called Rolling Stone Magazine, The Uncensored History, which is like a very famously dishy book. Oh, st- and, yeah. And st- there's like Sticky Fingers? Kind of talk- oh, no, not that one. That's a different one. No, that, no that's the Joe Hagen oh, book yeah. that came out like a couple years ago. This book came out, I think, in the 90s. Um, but it was like the first book that like really kind of dug into the gossipy background of Rolling Stone. And there's like some things in there about Cameron Crowe some unnamed sources like trashing him a little bit, basically saying that he was this guy that rock stars would demand write about them because he was known to be um, sort of like a fan journalist, basically, that he would write very positive articles about acts that had been previously slammed by Rolling Stone, including Led Zeppelin and the Eagles. Yeah. Uh, but what I, think, what I think is interesting about him is that like, you know, he was basically brought part of the appeal of him for the editors was that he did like those 70s bands and like the older sort of og writers like didn't like the 70s people like (laughs) i guess like grail marcus or somebody and i was just trying to think of like modern examples of that like has like pitchfork or spin or anyone did they ever like employ like a 14 year old rock writer or music (laughs) writer that could cover like you know young stuff because like I, I, the older people didn't like it i, mean, I, I think sam I mean, I uval think cool, like, actually i think sam uval back in like the mid 2000s uh for pitchfork was like 16 or 18 or andrew unterberger when he wrote for stylist but in no way shape or form were they brought in to like write positive reviews about i, I don't know who the equivalent of stillwater would have been in 2005 like the bravery <laughs> I, I i don't know <laughs> right yeah exactly like we got to bring in a middle schooler to write a positive review of, uh, you know, the uh, fallout boy or something, you know, like something that like our older writers wouldn't understand. You get a 45 year old to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, I kind of like that idea. Cause I always think, you know, like when you see like middle-aged writers, like write about like aggressively young acts, mm-hmm. even if they're like well-versed in it, it's always like the optics of it are always a little awkward. Yeah. I, I, as a middle-aged music writer myself, I, I'm always self-conscious of that because even if like, again, your knowledge is there and you have a sincere affection for it, I just wonder like, do kids really want to see like a middle-aged dude talk about this? Like, don't they want someone like from their own peer group? I don't know. It's always a little weird. But anyway, 
Um, Almost Famous was not a box office hit. I think it made around $50 million. Huh. And this amazed me when I looked it up. Yeah, I'm amazed too. Almost Famous costs, it, it costs $60 million to make. And I made a joke about this. I wrote a piece about Almost Famous for Uproxx this week. I made a joke about, and I don't even think it's a joke. I think it's true that like if you added up all the money that's ever been paid to music writers for every music review ever written. Like, do you even get close to $60 million? Like, I don't think you get close to $6 million. It's like, but it's amazing to me that like a major studio, which was DreamWorks, would pay that much money for a movie about a music writer. Mm. I mean, can you imagine that now? Like, uh, that that just blows my mind. That would never happen now. Ready reboot. (laughs) Well, yeah, maybe like, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents are murdered and then he goes to work for, uh, you know, Consequence of Sound. <laughs> you know, like that, that's like the new Batman movie. <laughs> like that would be the only way oh, they could Lord. do that now. But, um, you know, obviously it's become a cult favorite. Since then, it's become pretty entrenched in the culture. I feel like for music writers, the thing that we remember most is Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like I feel like his version of Lester Bangs is the most famous music critic ever. Like when people think about Lester Bangs now, I think they're picturing Philip Seymour Hoffman more than the actual person. And because there's things that he says in this movie uh, that like Lester Bangs did not say. Like Lester Bangs never said, what's that line? The only currency in this bankrupt world is what two people share when they're uncool. Yeah. Lester Bangs never said that. But, like, I've seen online that that's attributed to Lester Bangs as a quote, you know. Uh, but anyway, I I wanted to ask you this. I feel like among music writers, uh-huh. this is just anecdotally speaking, I feel like music writers tend to look down on this movie. Mm. I feel like it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, like we want to clown on it. I guess for many reasons. It's so, I guess, far removed yeah, I think from you, any of our I think you've called it like experiences top but, gun of like for music critics or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it totally, yeah, like how Top Gun glamorizes, you know, being in the military. Yeah. Like this glamorizes <laughs> being a music critic beyond sort of all realism. Yeah. Really. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, I think when when I I got to see this like last year, like uh, I I got I uh, real music critic talk. I got the jump on the uh, uh, almost famous anniversary. Um, you know, there's only so many times where you know San Diego is the cultural center of America. Like I would say, when Pod Satellite came out, um, when like this year when the Padres have a very exciting baseball team that no one can see, and last year, um, so if 2020 was normal. Uh, there would be a Broadway production of Almost Famous happening right now. I got to see uh, the preview of it. Uh, they had a test run at San Diego's Old Globe Theater. Um, and one of the things I forgot about the movie is that uh, Cameron Crowe, like, slash William Miller, grows up in San Diego. Apparently Lester Bangs' his parents are there. And I think that kind of unintentionally drives home how kind of uncool uh, the both of them are supposed to be because, you know, San Diego in 1973, not much was happening there. Um, but I think what this movie did is, like you said, it kind of took the uncoolness, uh, like the intrinsic uncoolness of Almost Famous. Like, li- what's the most famous line? I dig music. Or what do you love about? <laughs> Tell me what you love about music. Everything. And then it fades. Like, <laughs> you know, you can't imagine like a writer nor a musician talking that way. Um, and it glamorizes a period of time, which for many, many reasons has come under 
uh, incredible scrutiny. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about like what parts of this movie have aged the worst by nature of like being <laughs> seen in 2019. I mean, first off, like the base of the movie is Mark Kozlik. Um, that's going to be yeah. hard. For, but he gets, he gets, you know, he barely talks at all. But he gets, like, my opinion, the best line of the movie where they're, like, all arguing backstage. And he says, like, in a in the very Sun Kill Moon voice, can't we just go get barbecue or something? And it's it, to me, it's just, like, the greatest line reading of the movie. Um, beyond that... He says that, but then there's also the, there's the other Kozlik scene. Because I, I re-watched... Uh, I watched the bootleg cut of Almost <laughs> uh, this weekend. The hut, the, like, the two... It's, like, two hours and 40 minutes. Oh, God. Um... And I actually, I was like, I'm going to keep watching this until I get bored and I'll shut it off. And like, I watched the whole thing. I, I watched it. I was up to like 2.30 in the morning. Watching <laughs> it. Um, so that's how much, you know, and I'll just say like, I still like this movie. You know, yeah. we're going to make fun of this movie a little bit, but I still like it. But anyway, there's that scene that constantly, like, they're, on a, they're on the tour bus and they go by this like line of high school girls who are jogging. And like Koslick gets like really excited and starts like ogling. <laughs> The girls and oh, I was like, God. "Oh Jesus Christ!" Yeah, that's that 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 to me like is what aged the worst. Probably. <laughs> yeah, was, it was like, "Oh man, Koslik." Yeah, yeah, you gotta like airbrush him out. <laughs> yeah, I think there's that, um, and I think also the 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 musical version kind of airbrushes out like the very there there's it's a surprisingly not dark and debaucherous movie for about like rock in the seventies like. Uh, were to believe that uh, William Miller, a.k.a. Cameron Crowe, loses his virginity in, like, a, kind of a faux groupie orgy as well. Like, that gets kind of downplayed in the uh, musical. Also, like, the drug overdose, like, that happens off screen. And, you know, she's all right, like, two minutes later. Um, and, yeah, I think also when we look at Stillwater itself, well, one of the questions I think is worth litigating is, are, are Stillwater like a shitty band like are they supposed like how how good are they at being Stillwater? i think they're supposed to be like kind of a mediocre band i, I feel like yeah. cameron crow has talked about how because he wrote those songs with nancy wilson from heart who was his wife at the time mm. and i think the idea was that like Stillwater, like they weren't going to be led zeppelin they weren't going to be the allman brothers they were going to be more like um bad company or you know, yeah, uh, I'll tell you what, man. Grand Funk Railroad or something. <laughs> those song, like those, those songs band. are nowhere an American band. I mean, like we we got to show <laughs> some true. goddamn respect to Bad Company and Grand Funk. Okay, that's true. I guess I was, I was just trying to think of like mid level seventies bands. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think yeah. Again, I think the idea is like they're like they're okay, but they're not they're not great. Yeah, like the songs are ridiculous. Like one of my favorite subgenres is. Like when you see a television show or like a movie with like a band uh, and you and I don't think the bands or the writers is aware of how bad they are. And I don't think the writers are aware of how bad they are as well. I don't think that's the case here. I just think of Californication specifically, which is like the, the <laughs> single worst writer in television history. But I, I, I digress. <laughs> that just that just came on yeah, my mind. I mean, it's 2000, man. Californication was playing nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean. I was thinking about, you know, we were saying this before about how we are now close to as far away from being from 2000 as 2000 was from 1973. Yeah. And, and you, I think you made a good point earlier talking about how 
you know, I think in 2000, people were looking at the 70s as being like the good old days. Mm-hmm. Like if you were a music critic, like, oh, how cool would it have been to be on a bus with a band for, you know, several weeks, which even by then I think was a pretty far-fetched thing. I mean, maybe if you worked for Rolling Stone or like a top music magazine, you could get that kind of access, but probably not even like that amount of access. But I was thinking like if we made a movie or someone made a movie about music writing in the year 2000, like... William Miller would be, I guess, an early blogger or like on a, on a, you know, like a poster, like on a message board or something. I mean, kind of pivoting to it, I guess, our larger conversation here about music writing. I'm curious about like your experiences with that because, like, I feel like that that's the common experience for writers of our generation. Like, I feel like most people came up as a blogger or you know they started on a message board and they met people and that and that's how they kind of got into the business. Mm-hmm. And like that wasn't my experience. Like I had a very 20th century beginning to my career. Like I started at a daily newspaper, you know, and I covered tractor pulls and strawberry <laughs> festivals and then I would write music pieces on the side. Like sometimes they would let me interview like James McNew of Yola Tango because they were playing <laughs> They gave two you hours the away. bassist, man. <laughs> Yeah, that, I was like on they, the lowest they, that, rung. They big lead you at the. They big lead you by yeah. You can talk to James McNew. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like I'm talking to the third most famous guy in Yola Tango, <laughs> who like, and I could and as soon as I got on the, I, I remember that interview it was for uh, Summer Sun, like their 2003 record. Ooh. So it was like one of the. It's, so it was like a lesser Yola Tango record. Yeah. Um, but I could tell, like, immediately that he was not thrilled to be talking with, like, a 24-year-old kid from, like, a bumblefuck <laughs> paper in Wisconsin. Like, but uh, but anyway, like, because um, I feel like that that world, that blogging world is, um, you know, pretty much gone yeah. now. I mean, that that that's, I guess, what people from our generation would be wistful for. I mean, are you wistful for that? Like, what are your uh, memories of that? And how do you look back on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's funny you say like the blogging world has, you know, kind of disintegrated and you're talking about your experience in an alt weekly, which I mean, all right, like, exactly. both of those are gone. But as far as like my, look, I talk about, you ever hear like old heads, like talk about like what, you know, rap was like in 1988 when, you know, you had like, like Big Daddy Kane and KRS-One and Public Enemy, like all doing their thing, and uh, or like 1969 or whatever. Like any big, like any big bang for some sort of genre, and like you, that's me thinking about 2005 blogging. Like I, like I got so excited during that like span of time where people like started to go to Substack or Patreon again because to me that like those early blogging days were just so beautiful and ways that like look it was kind of a boys club where it was just like me and a bunch of guys who loved you know dipset and college football uh commenting on our own posts it was very much insular and also i just missed the self uh, the lack of self-consciousness about it where you could write you know like you were covering tractor pulls and whatnot like i was writing about like uh virginia football and hot pockets and sometimes about like the new death cab album uh, and I could just throw 5,000 words on a page and, you know, people would like it and you didn't have as many eyes on you. Um, but it still meant something like, I think that is what, what people like miss about, you know, 2004, 2005 is that you could, there, there wasn't as many eyes on you and you could kind of say or whatever you want, but it would still have impact. 
Like this was right before I think Pitchfork started paying people to write for them. Uh, so you still had that kind of spirit of blogging, uh, but it was still influential. Like what people said on blogs, you know, and you can talk about like Gorilla vs. Bear as well or early stereo gum. Um, yeah, it, it, it was less corporate, but there was still like room to maneuver. And I think some version of that is happening now. I don't know what it is because I'm not 23 or 24 years old. Um, but, you know, it, it remains like this will be 2020 will be someone's golden age. You know, uh, there. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think what you said was really interesting about how, like, not having like a lot of eyeballs on you, because I think that was true. And that was definitely true for me, too. And I think that was what was really great about how the media <laughs> was then, where if you were young and you were writing for an obscure outlet, which is what I was doing, like no one cared what I was writing. Oh, so God, I was like no. writing like all this. I was doing all this shitty writing <laughs> that really no one was reading, but I was like getting my reps in. Like I was learning how to do stuff. And mm. um, it wasn't like, I feel like that changed even like by the 2010s, like where, and I don't see this as much anymore, but there, there was this, I think, really bad practice of, you know, someone from like an alt weekly would write like, you know, sort of like a mildly disparaging column about like Avril Lavigne or something. Like he would say, oh, like, this isn't real music, like, it's too poppy. And then, like, every music writer would, like, share it on Twitter mm. and just, like, rip this to shreds. And I'm like, man, I wrote so many things like that when <laughs> I was, you know, getting started. Yeah. And, like, no one cared. And I was like, I, I got to I got to learn. I mean, the, the difference with me was that I wasn't influential. Like, I was ignored <laughs> and also uninfluential. So, like, that was, but that was a good thing. But um, So what, like, you're saying that people don't share, look at this dumbass on Twitter and then just clown that person? <laughs> the, oh, yeah, that's definitely changed. But um, I think you're... Well, I feel like, I, I think there's more punching up now. Yeah. I feel like people will do that with, like, a New York Times piece. Oh, absolutely. But they won't necessarily, like, clown, like, an obscure person. Oh, like, yeah. Or maybe I'm just following... I'm not following as many mean people anymore. Maybe I, I don't know, but I don't. I feel like I don't see that as much anymore as I did back then. Yeah, I I think I remember one thing like Death Cat for Cutie talked about in uh, Greg Cott's book Ripped was that um, the thing that allowed them to be the band that they eventually became is that they you know in Ben Gibbard's words to paraphrase like they could suck in private at the beginning you know like they were allowed to get their right. reps in and you know. But maybe, like, look, I've seen a lot of guys these days who, you know, who have gotten just absolutely torn to shreds for something they wrote, and their career carries on. You know, like, the the, the, right. the, good, the nice thing, you know, if you want to call it a nice thing, is that for even if people aren't, um, aren't subject to, like, you know, getting their reps in in private, the memory is a lot shorter. You know, people sometimes ask me, like, you know, what's it like to have, quote, your day on Twitter when you're the one just getting torn apart? And I'm like, yeah, it sucks for a day, but then someone else is getting someone else is getting shit on like two days later. So just like, hang on, man. Don't give up. You know? Right. Well, it's good to be in the barrel sometimes. Mm -hmm. I really believe in I, I believe that. I think that if you're not in the barrel, that means that you're not really writing stuff that is uh, provoking people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think sometimes it's like. I know I've had instances like where I've written things and it gets ripped to shreds and I go, yeah, uh, I wish I hadn't oh, said God, that. Oh, God, yeah. But, but it was only because I was trying to, I was pushing, you know, yeah. like I was trying to be interesting. And sometimes it's like 
it's like being a comedian on stage. Sometimes you push it too far mm. and the audience reacts against you. But yeah. um, what, what, what's interesting talking about like this world and again, you know, like like the blogger world or even being like if you're working in all weeklies at the time in comparison to like what happens in Almost Famous, I almost wonder like, was there a thing you think in our early days where it was almost like reacting against access journalism? You know, oh like this, God, yes. That was the- Because I feel like, you know, because like for us, I feel like we didn't have access at all. That was the best part it about it. It freed us up. <laughs> exactly. Like you could be freed up. Because I think, you know, you look at Almost Famous and there is something envious about like, wow, like imagine if you could write a profile of somebody if you were actually like living with them for, you know, a couple weeks. But that actually makes your job harder in a lot of ways. Because if you become friends with somebody, you don't want to write critical things about them. But if you don't know them and you're just on the outside, it it just frees you up to be to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the 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 access problem, like what we saw in uh, 2005, like now look, I mean, there is a lot of great journalism that can occur uh, with access. Um, you know, just being like you need resources, you need uh, the ability to send someone out there to do real in depth stuff. But when it comes to like criticism. I think the less access is better. And um, I think there was a period, particularly almost right after Almost Famous came out, where, um, you know, like the aforementioned Village Voice article or, you know, the, uh, you know, the Jet Shine On review era Pitchfork or, um, you know, Stereo Gum, Gorilla vs. Bear, all those places was that it created an alternative to this kind of access journalism because i mean in 2000 was that the year that um mick jaggers got us in the doorway got five stars um (laughs) it's around then yeah yeah, so in a way like that form of access journalism was um i mean it it became like abundantly clear and like when when we talk about kid a i like in, in a few weeks i think that'll also show like what happened like how this idea of what like access journalism in 2000 was like in no way prepared uh, to move on to the future where people needed to form information, like form opinions much more quickly and it could be exchanged on message boards and whatnot. But I mean, to this day, um, you know, access can like, I'm looking over my shoulder a lot because I mean, even 2009 when I was writing the vast majority of like, you know, my pan reviews, it was like the worst you could get was like, I don't know, some dude, some drunk college kid at like 2 a.m. talking about like, you know, how I live with my parents and whatever. And nowadays it's like you like you have there are a lot more eyes on you. It's like, well, wait, I'm if I'm not like, you know, friendly with this musician, I'm friendly with people who work with them or people who've toured with them. And is this really worth the 100 or so dollars or even let or like, is this worth like not the nothing it costs to tweet to talk about this? And, you know, the answer is more often than not is no, you know, I can't be, what's that line? Like merciless. And what, what's Lester Bangs' line about like what you need to be. He says honest and unmerciful. Honest and unmerciful. Yeah. I, I, that it, it is much harder to do that or it's just not worth it to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, it's funny because I think when we started, there was almost this like valley between the seventies and now where, it seemed like in the 70s, people, if you were for Rolling Stone especially, they were very aware of what artists were thinking. And like if if you slam somebody that was popular, that that could hurt your 
your brand in the long run. You know, and it seemed like that was something that, that they were already negotiating in 1973. And I think that's very also much the case now where, you know, so many music publications, it feels like they're in this precarious state where a lot of musicians now, it feels like, they don't really need the media. You know, they can talk to people directly. You're seeing this thing more and more where like musicians who are, you know, the, the, the huge pop stars, they will only talk to other pop stars now. Like if, they, if they're going to do like the Vanity Fair story or something, it's like, you know, uh, Beyonce's only going to talk to, you know, Solange or something. You know, like it, they're, you're only going to get like, or yeah, the only or way like you're get that Jack piece. Antonoff will interview Lana Del Rey or, and like, you know, why not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Like, why, why would you cast your lot with, you know, like, like with Stillwater, like they made us look like idiots or whatever, you know, uh, whatever they say. Right. Like, wh- if you were a musician yeah, that, that, who had that leverage, why would you cast your lot with like a 23 or 25 year old, like, kid you know exactly especially when the um incentive to write something spicy about an artist to get some heat for yourself is like so great yeah you know writing the the bland piece um is not going to get a lot of attention but if you can get some if you can write like really well and sort of colorfully about a famous person that that's usually how you get um some heat on you but did you see that lana del rey piece by the way that that jack it was for interview magazine uh i've Uh, i've actually not like and that's not that's not a crack against either artists involved like i just straight up have not seen it i just had to laugh at that piece because she she described herself as an underdog in that piece yeah and it just reminds me of and she says i'm an underdog she feels like you know people aren't gonna Basically saying, like, I, I still don't get any any respect. She must have listened and to the it, last episode of IndieCast, so shout to you, Lana Del Rey. <laughs> well, it's like, it just reminds me of, like, how, and I don't think they're doing this anymore, but, like, for a long time, like, I would see, like, the New York Times refer to, like, Taylor Swift as an underdog. Like, even, like, during her 1989 period, they were calling her an underdog, and it's just, like, at what point does do these people get looked at as, like, the most the famous overdog. people on <laughs> earth. <laughs> well, it's like Lana Del Rey is like, you know, she's a huge pop star. She is maybe the most critically acclaimed singer-songwriter on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of anyone who got better reviews Fiona in 2019 Apple. than oh, her. Well, okay, 2019. Oh, Fiona Apple. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But she's at least among the yeah. most critically acclaimed Yeah, top, top five that are alive. Well, maybe yeah. not that. But. So... Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's true that like, I think now, yeah, you know that the artists, like if you write anything critical about an artist, you can be pretty sure that they're going to see it. Oh, like, absolutely. You know, and, and, and they may even like react to it publicly. Um, but yeah, like also the fans out there, they're, they see it and they're going to screen cap stuff and take it out of context and they're going to like – just 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 deluge you with like negativity uh uh if you write the wrong thing yeah i mean that's definitely yeah i wonder like how lester bangs would have reacted Mm. in the social media era (sighs) like where yeah there's so much response you get so much feedback yeah and you you have so much of it coming at you and like a lot of it being hostile Mm. i don't know i think a lot of people may see themselves as like the lester bangs of the current day and I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if like this current environment is really like, um, conducive to having that style of person and maybe it's for the best. I mean, you look at, 
I think one of the things that uh, stands out to me when I look at Almost Famous in retrospect is that uh, as much as Cameron Crowe, like, obviously admires Lester Bangs, uh, and he's seen as this larger-than-life character, you kind of see that he is indeed very full of shit. Because, you know, like, he talks <laughs> about, like, how, you know, it's the young cool who makes the art that matters, and, like, ugly people, like, in his words, like, are going to, like, are the people who make art that lasts. And, like, Lester Bangs is... Uh, like feverishly praising the likes of like Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, who are like the coolest people on earth. Like, and he thinks that Stillwater is like the prefab cool. And also like Lester Bangs was more than happy to cozy up to musicians uh, when he was trying to start bands and whatnot. So um, I think it's, I, I don't think that, I don't need like historical accuracy necessarily from Almost Famous, but um, yeah, I think that like with anyone who fancies themselves as like kind of the gonzo, like truth teller of any time, like that person is kind of full of shit in some very, yeah, I, and occasionally you see that, uh, archetype come up, there'll be some, it's usually a guy yeah. doing it, <laughs> who like, you know, fancies themselves like that, you know, that they want to do the gonzo thing. They do the jaded truth teller yeah. routine you know like and you just uh, it's usually on twitter i just imagine like them tweeting with like a cigarette dangling from their mouth some aviator shades on and just dropping some truth bombs about the music business man yeah. like yeah, i don't know it's, industry plants man uh, yeah it, <laughs> exactly um looking ahead i mean how do you feel about the future of, of music writing i feel like this is something that people in our field uh, speculate on all the time. I, I, I see a lot of doom and gloom typically about it, and with good reason. I mean, this year, I mean, a lot of great writers have lost their jobs yeah. uh, in the pandemic economy. Even in non-pandemic economies, like music publications have always kind of towed the line mm-hmm. of like insolvency, you know, like <laughs> being on the brink of, uh, of being shut down, and, and many have been shut down. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I It's weird because I also feel like if you read music writing from like the seventies, a lot of it is like really bad. Oh, it's awful. Writing is bad. The perspectives are bad. It's, it's a pretty sort of like monochromatic, like white guy perspective. And I say that as a white guy, you know, person. (laughs) Um, but like, I know, like I was looking at, I think it was like the, uh, like Rolling Stone. They did their, uh, hundred greatest albums of like the first 20 years of the magazine from 67 to 87. Okay. And I looked at, and there was like 16 people that wrote for that. And there were, I don't think there was any women. <laughs> or there might have been one woman, like out of 16 writers. Oh, okay. And like, and there were almost like no women on the list. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it was very much like a one-to-one type thing. And, you know, I think now, obviously, I mean, music writing is way more diverse than it's ever been in terms of gender and race. And also just like in terms of like the music being covered. Yeah. I mean, you can really read about any kind of music now. Mm-hmm. Um, which you couldn't do in the seventies or even like the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like in that respect, I'm actually like pretty positive about the way things are, even though, I mean, there's always like music writing that you roll your eyes at that is just awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just because there's more music writing, like there's more bad music writing now, but there's also like more like really good stuff. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's it, it, like the, the like at the time that Almost Famous came out, um, I was not an like I 
I have like no real like emotional relationship to what people oftentimes like consider the gods of music writing. Like I've never read anything Lester Bangs did. Um, I've not read Grail Marcus. Um, I've I'm only familiar with Robert Criscow because you know it's the it, it just pops up on Twitter sometimes with just like a, a ridiculous take that he had in you know 1985 <laughs> or whatever oftentimes you bring well, it he's up. taking shots at both of us yeah too. no he, yeah that dude was at like harvard or something like that like in talking about how if ian cohen says i think he called me ryan shriver's stooge or something like that um <laughs> and it's like if ian cohen doesn't <laughs> like something that's like i know i'm gonna like it or something like that but um yeah, like I, I yeah. When I'm, when I'm in my 70s, I'm gonna be. I, I'm looking forward to like knocking people <laughs> who are in their 20s. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that era of my career. Yeah, very much. I'm, I'm also I'm, looking I'm, forward. I'm to semi joking about that. I'm also like looking forward to being 70 and writing for like shuttered Vice verticals or whatever. But um, Ooh. yeah, shots fired. <laughs> if you're li- if you're listening, dude. Nah, but um, you know, in 2000, it's all love. It's all love. Yeah, man. it's it is. Um, you know, I'm sure someone's saying the same shit about us but uh yeah like at at the time like i wasn't nostalgic for that kind of writing like at you know in 2000 the people i was reading was you know early pitchfork i was reading like guys like rob sheffield who just seemed to be kind of breaking away from that uh tradition and you know in some ways starting a new one of like a, a boys club but um yeah i think what 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 we're seeing right now is the same kind of deconstruction of the I guess you would call it like an access journalism industry that was happening all over again because, um, yeah, it sucks that, uh, you know, people are losing jobs at alt weeklies at, um, you know, non mainstream outlets. Um, and in the same way that like there's more music than ever for people who enjoy music, uh, there's more music writing available for people who enjoy music writing. Like, I mean, you get so many more opinions, so many more, uh, diverse uh, voices being heard. And at the same time, though, it's worse for the people who create music writing, because in some ways, like, you know, it, you don't need access, but you also need like time and energy. And if, you know, I work a 40 hour, 40, 50 hour job for per week job, and it's like, uh, if I don't have the energy to write about music, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, and I don't think that, you know, you, like I want to just point out that in Almost Famous, uh, William Miller gets $1,000 to write that uh, profile of Stillwater. That's like nearly $6,000 in 2020. Um, that to me is the most ridiculous part of it. But um, what I see with the future of music writing, like you say, is that um, more people are still going to do it. Um, I think the drive to voice opinions and be affected by art is still... Uh, too much to tamp down. Um, I'm just wondering about what influence it's going to have. You know, it's, I think one of the things that people, uh, you know, look nostalgically upon, uh, whether you're talking about like mid to like mid 2000s pitchfork or like 90s spin or Rolling Stone even um, in, in its heyday is that for music writing to have an impact, like what you say can change the course of what's being talked about and that uh through sheer like force of opinion this band can be talked about in the same echelon as like the biggest pop stars who don't need that and 
Um, I think that's like the positive, you know, if you can think of any of like everything kind of shutting down, because what we've seen is uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, irrevocably music being treated in the same, like now that it's like a 24 seven news cycle, it gets treated a lot as like politics or sports, like kind of a horse race style thing about like, who's, you know, about like winners and losers and like, you, you know, in the same way, like in sports, you have to talk about the teams that are winning. Like you can't give more coverage to, um, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings because you think they're a more interesting team than the Lakers, you know? So um, I don't know where it's, uh, it's, look, we would have had the same conversation pre-COVID. So I think that we're, we're seeing, I, I don't know where it's going to head, but in a weird way, I'm positive because it just kind of has to go on, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's funny now because I feel like everyone's a music writer yeah. now because of social media. And I know this is probably true for you too. There's a lot of people that I follow. Actually, some of my favorite people who talk about music, like they're not professional music writers. They're just music fans yeah. who like listen to a lot, a lot of records. And a lot of times they're refreshing because they are just fans and they're not using the lingo of music criticism or like they're not as, as obsessed as like you said with the horse racing aspects of music writing which i agree has become really uh predominant like that whole thing about how you know sort of judging music based on like how well it does in the marketplace yeah i feel like that's become uh, way overbearing and I'm, I'm looking forward to that becoming less of a thing like where we judge music based on or even whole genres based on like how commercial they are or like how you know how much uh, in the conversation they are yeah I, I just find that to be such a tiresome way to talk about Art. I mean, I just don't think it's all that productive. I mean, you you said something before about like having an impact. I have to say that, like for me, like in terms of like influencing discourse or impacting a band's career, like I've I'm personally I've never really been that interested mm. in that. And in a way, I always hope that like if I pan a record, like I don't want to hurt someone's career. No, I don't like it. You know, like I, I would hope that like even like a listener would check something out. You know they'd be inspired to listen to it because I wrote a negative review and then they can form their own opinion. I feel like at this moment, like if you're, if you are a music writer that, you know, there was this idea, I think back in the seventies or the eighties or even like, you know, maybe even early aughts that if you're a music critic, you kind of have to write about everything. You have to like be the go-to person for music opinions on like what's happening in the culture. Um, but I feel like now, you know, the idea that like a reader's only going to read like one writer is, I don't think anyone really believes that. I mean, I think people curate a collection of writers and they go to writers for specific things. Like, and I know it's true for me. Like there's people I follow because I know they really like metal or I know they really like country music or, you know, and I, and it's like, you're my country person and I want to see you talk about that. And sometimes you have to unfollow people because they stop talking about music and they just like talk about Trump all day long, which has yeah. like happened a lot <laughs> on social media. But it's like you almost have to, ha you know, I hate using this term, but it's almost like you have uh, you have to have a brand as a music writer. You have to have like something where people are coming to you because of they want your opinion on this, yeah. you know, as opposed to like I just need a music opinion. I need you know I I want to know if anything is good, mm -hmm. um, and. I mean, I feel like you and I have certainly probably carved out our own <laughs> niches there, and that's probably like why we're still around. But I think that's true of like pretty much every successful music critic I can think yeah, of. Like, absolutely, I, I, I can def 
it's like you can define who they are in a sentence, yeah. basically. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right in that, like, at the 2000s or whatever, you had, like, a Chuck Klosterman type guy who would, like, or just, like, or, like, Rob Sheffield, for that matter, who was, like, they would cover everything. And it's, like, and it was interesting to read that person, uh, but it's impossible to get that kind of following now where you're just known as, like, this writer who covers all, because it's impossible to keep up. Um, and... So, yeah. Well, and also because there's always someone else. I feel like yeah. if you're a general interest person writing about metal, I'm like, well, I know metal writers who know way more about metal than you. Yeah. So, like, why wouldn't I listen to that rather than, like a, like, a general interest person? But I also think that a general interest person, like, if I like the style that they write in or if I like the way they think, um, then I think it, it can lead to a different perspective as well because, I mean... Like, right. I mean, it, it, it cuts both ways because, you know, you talk to someone who just listens to metal, um, you know, like, you, yeah, they might be blinkered. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you get like a little too blinkered if you're just like in one scene. Exactly. And, yeah. Cause, um, you don't really, yeah. You, yeah. Cause sometimes like even with like the emo slash punk stuff I listen to, like I'll see a band that like people are like raving about. It's like, I don't know, man, maybe y'all need to like maybe expand your boundaries a bit. <laughs> But I think, and I think that's the case with any sort of genre as well. But um, yeah, I think the the idea of like the generalist, like the person making essays about all sorts of things, is really I don't know. Maybe that's come and gone. But I could very well be wrong about that. Maybe there is that kind of person who exists on TikTok or Twitter, and I just am not aware of them because the culture, the youth culture, is not for me. You know. <laughs> well, I think you know to wrap up this conversation. I think that the future of music writing is ultimately going to be two guys on a podcast talking about music writing. Yeah, you are that is the you future. are at the ground floor of the future, y'all. Like you <laughs> in twenty in twenty years in two thousand forty, we're gonna they're gonna be doing like the twentieth anniversary of this show. Uh, yep, almost, Cameron Crowe's almost famous part two. It'll just be two guys <laughs> exactly. on a microphone talking about music writing. Yeah, man, talking about music writing of the past. Yeah, this is this is this is what it was like to be at CBGBs when like Velvet Underground was playing or whatever. <laughs> All right. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where Ian and I recommend things that we're into. We call it Recommendation Corner. Ian, what do you recommend this week? All right, so uh, in some ways I feel like I'm kind of stealing your bit here because um, I'm talking about a band from Wisconsin. Uh, you know, it, yes. I, th- I think it's kind of funny how like in so many ways, uh, like we, we kind of brand switch here while being on brand because you're oftentimes into the stuff that sounds like you know, you can listen to it at the beach and barbecuing. And I feel like in some ways right. I'm like a Midwesterner at heart. So um, <laughs> it, so the, the record I want to talk about uh, is, you know, Labor Day weekend came and went. And uh, in some ways people think of what they've missed out on as barbecues, social gatherings, uh, NFL kickoff. You know, those are all things that are part and parcel of Labor Day weekend. And for me, I think about like what it's what it might be like for people starting, uh, you know, maybe their last year of college. You know, a lot of people have been, uh, you know, robbed of that experience. And uh, when when autumn starts to come to pass, you know, that to me, it, it speaks to a specific kind of emo that is made by a band like Barely Civil. 
Um, the kind of American football slash death cab derived, like staring at the changing leaves and thinking about your future. Um, so Barely Civil is a band that started out in 2018. And I think this is a band that's going to speak to your heart, Stephen, because three of them are products of the University of Wisconsin uh, satellite system. One went to UW-Milwaukee, one UW-Oshkosh, and another uh, UW-Eau Claire. They're based out of Wausau. Yes, that's where I went to school, baby. Blue Golds. <laughs> all, right, all right, and school pride. So yeah, these guys, um, in 2018, they put out a their debut album called uh, We Can Live Here Forever. And, it, you know, it, it, it was a solid entry into basically kind of emo worship. Like, as these guys t- said in an interview I did with them recently, you know, very much influenced by Death Cab, uh, Jimmy World. And also, they wrote these songs when they were 18 years old, so... Uh, the influence on that w- was pr- still pretty profound. And in this new album, um, they... Okay, so if I really wanted to feel old, um, I could just refer to this interview where they said, for their second album, um, we want people to feel the way that I did when I heard The World is a Beautiful Place and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die's Harmlessness. That record came out in 2005. They were 17 when that record came out. I was 35. So they were they were literally <laughs> half my age talking about this formative experience. And with this new album they work with, uh, The World Is, is uh, guitarist Chris Teddy uh, recorded at his studio. And this, to me, their new album, um, I'll Figure This Out, is just autumnal emo, like par excellence. If you want to, if you want the feeling of being on a Midwest campus uh watching the leaves change thinking about lost loves and about you know what the future holds and the daunting prospects of your early 20s it's not a sound that people really do that well anymore i think with a lot of this style of music it's gotten screamier or like more kind of pop but this uh this hits at a very specific niche that i just can't get enough of um like basically if you like Death Cab for Cutie's plans or Jimmy Eat World's futures, like the kind of darker follow-up. Uh, this record's for you. It just sounds gorgeous. Uh, the vocals are kind of emo-y, but not quite. It's still almost more like Frightened Rabbit in a way. Um, so, yeah, Barely Civils. Uh, I'll figure this out. If you're looking to feel wistful, if you want to start layering, if you want to start like sipping... Uh, you know, a hard cider. This is, I, I would say this is the one for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I knew you were going to talk about this album, right? <laughs> a feeling you were going to talk about it. Like, if you weren't, I was going to bring it up because <laughs> of, you know, I, I do feel obligated to, to rep Wisconsin bands, of course. But, like, aside from that, for all the reasons that you just said, this is like a really great record. It's like, it's perfectly timed with the season. Um, and it, yeah, it really has that. Um, like throwback emo rock. Yeah, and they're and they're, un, they're totally too. unapologetic about like be considering themselves an emo band. Like they're they're like our influences are Death Cab, the world is a beautiful place to die. Uh, they are unapologetic about that, and I appreciate that. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, definitely check that record out. Um, the record I'm going to recommend is called uh, New Vernitas. It's by a dude named William Tyler, and uh, he's a guitar player. Um, who has been around for a long time. He got to start playing uh, with the Silver Jews. Um, I think it was like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, since then, he's been 
he's played with a bunch of other musicians, but I, th- I think he's really established a name f- for himself with like a series of just like beautiful and wonderful sort of atmospheric instrumental guitar records. Um, his records always feel like they should be the soundtracks of, of movies. And he actually did recently do a score for the uh, latest Kelly Reichert film, First Cow. Mm-hmm. Um, good movie. But this album that he's put out. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Um, and this uh, this latest record that he's put out, called, again called New Vanitas, um, is again just like a really sort of like atmospheric, beautiful, evocative record. And it, it, it's not a score to a film, but it will create movies in your mind. It's definitely one of those records. And I think like when you talk about like instrumental guitar records, I think people might have a certain image in their head of like a folky dude playing an acoustic and doing like lots of weird tunings and maybe kind of showing off uh, a lot of like kind of uh, noodling and all that kind of thing. But I think William Tyler is like a true composer. You know, he's not a guitar player first. I think he thinks about the soundscapes that he wants to create. And I think like on this record in particular, there's a lot of stuff on there that like isn't necessarily based on the guitar. It almost reminds me of like, like the Brian Eno, like ambient Hmm. records, like where there's a lot of just kind of spaciness, um, you know, just kind of weird keyboard textures, you know, sonic explorations. Um, You know, I went on a walk Labor Day weekend listening to this record, hiking in nature. (laughs) (laughs) This record was such a great accompaniment for that. It was like... uh, it's it's a record that will like will make you feel stoned without doing drugs. I guess that would be like the best hmm. endorsement I could give of this record. So the record's called New Benitas. It's by William Tyler. Put that in your ears this week. Uh, yeah, if you're out of weed, listen to this record. It will save you some money. Um, yeah, it, I, I I like William Tyler too. I think that it's it's indi- like it's it's a pretty crowded market for like instrumental kind of. Uh, rootsy guitar music and you can just kind of t- like with some bit you can just kind of tell like this guy is definitely better than other people right even if it's like hard to explain yeah he's definitely at the top of the class i think like him and like steve gunn are at the top of the class and there's like yeah. some other good people too but like those are the guys you want to go to and even steve gunn has moved more into maybe conventional singer songwriter territory but tyler is more he's definitely sticking with like the atmospheric um, you know, wing of that subgenre, and, and yeah, I think he does it better than anyone. So, hopefully, you enjoy those recommendations, and I hope you enjoyed our latest episode of IndieCast. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com/indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Uh, we'll be back next week with more news and reviews and trends for your ears. Thanks guys.